we're, we're wrapping up uh, for the most part. Paul's letters written to various churches while he was under Roman confinement. Uh, and before we hit today's text and the concluding remarks to this book, uh, I'm going to take a few minutes just to look back at some of the, the big themes that have been consistent all the way through Paul's letters. And I, I think what you'll see here is, is Paul's passionate concern for sound doctrine and, for, and you'll see his heart for the people in these churches. Uh, and, and we know by now that Paul was a theologian, to be sure. The, the, the first half of all these letters were very doctrinally rich. Uh, Paul was a deep thinker. He was a man of letters, a, a theologian in every sense of the word. But we also got to see Paul the encourager, the exhorter, the communicator. And Paul wanted all believers to fully understand, fully understand what it means to be a committed Christ follower. So, not surprisingly, he didn't try to hide anything. He wasn't trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. One of the consistent themes we've seen all the way through is the idea of suffering. Yay! (laughs) Suffering for the cause of Christ. Suffering as a direct result of our affiliation with Jesus. So we're not talking about just regular life hardships. You know, we all have those bad days at work or disagreements with a spouse or whatever. We're not talking about that stuff. Paul's talking about actual suffering for being a Christ follower. We should expect that. We should anticipate that. And he's not trying to sugarcoat it. He comes right out and says in Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, we know pain and suffering is just part of being alive, but as Jesus' followers, he said, this, this is really good news. You've been granted. You've been gifted. You've been rewarded with extra suffering, and that for the cause of Christ. This is an opportunity for you. And apparently, suffering for the cause of Christ, it's common enough among believers that Paul also thought to remind us that we are to help each other in times of need, bear one another's burdens. That's part of how we get through this. Suffering and perseverance through suffering is a regular theme in all of Paul's writings. So it it, it seems almost ironic then that another of Paul's themes throughout these letters is the idea of joy. At least 17 times in these letters, Paul talks about joy or rejoicing. Philippians 4.4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Didn't hear me? Let me say it again. Rejoice. In Colossians 1.11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It's counterintuitive, it seems, that he can focus on both suffering and joy. And, And he doesn't just say rejoice in spite of suffering. He says have joy through the pain. He goes so far as to rejoice because of his suffering. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. It sounds crazy. It is paradoxical. And it really only makes sense to find joy in suffering if the suffering is done for the sake of Christ. Christ died for us, and so he calls us to suffer for him. Okay, then. 
For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way, we win. Another big theme throughout these letters has been the idea of grace. 25 times in these letters, 25 times Paul refers to grace. In fact, he opens every single letter with with some version of grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul understood and he he taught the churches, he, he tried to teach all believers to understand that everything we have, everything we're called to be, everything we're equipped to be, the new life we're called to, the new life we're given, it's all a result of God's grace. His unmerited love towards us through Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved. This is not anything you have done. Grace permeates these letters. It's kind of the the glue that holds all of this together. We see 13 times in these letters, Paul makes some reference to thanksgiving, thankfulness. Colossians 3, 16 and 18, he said, Let the word of God dwell in, you, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts. Thanksgiving is kind of a, the, the antidote for selfishness, for self-obsessiveness. It causes us to remember that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord when we are grateful for what he has done for us, what he's given us. Even those trials that vex us, the ones that wear us down, the ones that beat us up, The suffering comes from being a Christ follower. It comes from the Lord. And it's to cause us to grow, to mature, to depend on him more. So we're to give thanks in everything. Philippians 4, he said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there are a couple others that we could mention. I'm only going to mention one more. One of the grand themes throughout has been the idea of our faithfulness. Paul calls us to work out our faith, to walk out our faith. Think about all the times we've heard about walking throughout this series. Uh, Paul calls us to walk by the Spirit, walk by this rule. We should walk in the good works prepared for us. Don't walk as the Gentiles do, but walk in love. Walk as children of light. Walk not as the unwise, but as the wise. Walk in wisdom. But we get the idea, this is how we're supposed to live. And repeatedly we've heard, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It seems real clear that that true faith, genuine faith in the Lord Christ, is not just something that we possess. It should be something that possesses us. It changes us. It compels us to move, to change, to grow. To grow into something altogether different and new, which Paul refers to as us being a new creation, a new man, a new self. And this new self desires to follow the instructions that we've been given, or at least make good efforts, good attempts at following. So we put to death the heavy sins that easily pull us away from this new life, sexual immorality and impurities of all kinds and evil desires. He said we're to put away anger and malice and slander and lying, and then we work hard at putting on compassion and kindness and humility and love. This is not a self-help plan. This is not 30 days to a more powerful and productive you. 30 days to live your best life now. This is absolutely the power and grace of God changing us into something new, holy and blameless. 
and it should affect every aspect of our being. That's what Paul's trying to get across. We saw it twice last week in, in last week's text. He said, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it for the Lord. Can you think of any exceptions to that? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it for the Lord. And then he said again, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. So he's our audience. He's the one we aim to please. He died for us and calls us to live for him. And this has been the pattern of Paul's own life. His sufferings have been well chronicled. And even now, he writes these letters from prison, you know, of sorts. He's un- under, under a watch anyway. But his, his focus is never on his own pain and suffering. And we'll see how he closes out this letter to the church in Colossae. You'll see some of these themes repeated one more time before he wraps up this letter. Starting in chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, when he starts off with continue steadfastly in prayer, we should probably pray before we get into the rest of this. Father God, we are grateful for the chance to spend time here together to uh, look at the, uh, the, the depth of your word. And, and Lord, I pray if, if, there, if there's a, a phrase that really resonates with us and carries through this series, it's this idea of letting the word of God dwell richly in us. Lord, may, may we be compelled and, and encouraged, um, ignited to spend more time in your word, to, to read and study and understand to know more about you, to know more about how we are to live, to know more about how we are to interact with people around us. It's all laid out here. Even just today's text, we see all of those things covered. So I pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and and hearts to really understand what you have for us. We thank you for this opportunity to learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. So continue steadfastly in prayer. So I, I think just by that phrasing, Paul assumes the church is praying. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And he encourages them to keep it up. But then he kind of makes it a point of special emphasis. He says, continue steadfastly. And that has the meaning of being committed to, being devoted to something. Be committed to praying. And then he says, be watchful in it. And that has the idea of being alert, being vigilant. So together, Paul is saying that as prayers... As Christians, we should be, have, a, have a regular, frequent, ongoing prayer as part of our Christian life. Always aware of the circumstances and needs around us, not just what's happening with us. So this is an encouragement for those who are already perhaps steadfast prayers, and, and, and it serves as an exhortation perhaps, an encouragement to those who aren't quite as regular as maybe they could be. Pay attention to your prayer life. Be steadfast. Be watchful. Understand the power and the importance of prayer. And one of the ways to help us be more steadfast, to be more watchful, is to pray with thanksgiving. I mean, thanking God is a, it's a great reminder to us uh, of all the good that God has done for us. We, we actually call to mind the things that we have to be thankful for. It's a good exercise. It's a good regular habit to, to get in. 
It keeps us focused on who God is, on what he has done. And that, in turn, keeps us humble, because we are not God. It helps keep our prayers from becoming these giant request-a-thons. Lord, here's my list of all the ways I need you to work for me today. It takes the focus off us and, and directs it back to the Lord. So Paul's first directive, this, this closing message, is for them to pray. For their own benefit, but then he says, pray for us also. And notice he says, pray for us. Not pray for me, Paul. Pray for us. And what does he want prayer for? Well, obviously for the door of the prison to be open. That's not what he prays for. He prays for an open door to share the word. For more opportunities to declare the gospel. To share the mystery of Christ, which is that salvation is now available to anyone who will believe. Anyone who will accept it. And when those opportunities arise, he prays for wisdom to share the message clearly. So it's understandable. This is key. Paul's not looking for an opportunity to show off how many verses he has memorized or how deep his theology runs. Paul wants to be able to share the good news in a way that the hearer can understand it and hopefully receive it. It's good for us to remember. You know, we don't always have to worry about trying to impress anyone by using the right doctrinal terms. We don't have to throw around Latin phrases. We are to speak truth in love in a way that makes the gospel clear. So Paul's big picture here, as he's writing from prison, as he's under guard, at least under Roman confinement, for being a faithful witness to the gospel, Paul prays for even more opportunities to share the gospel, which may well put him right back in prison. you got to admit, that's pretty remarkable. That's dedication. Before he's even released from jail, he's praying for opportunities to be locked back up again. He is a bondservant to Christ. And then he encourages us along the same lines. I mean, I don't think he desires that the whole church ends up in chains necessarily, but he does encourage us to walk in a manner worthy. That's the implication here of his use of walk. And he gets even more specific. He says, walk in wisdom. Walk in faith. Walk according to the right beliefs, the orthodoxy, which you're now familiar with. If you've read the letter, you've got the right belief, the right orthodoxy. And the even more specific application is, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord towards outsiders. Those outside the church, the unbelievers. Paul specifically addresses our interactions with unbelievers. And this interaction seems to be the context of a conversation. But first we need to walk the walk before we can talk the talk. Walk in wisdom. Let them see how you live. Let them see this new self as much as possible. And when you, when you blow it, when you mess up, say, I blew it. I messed up. I'm not perfect yet. By God's grace, I'm becoming perfecter. Paul encourages us to live rightly and then to share freely through simple dialogue. He's not talking about us going out and becoming street preachers necessarily or internationally known podcasters. 
even public speakers. That, that's not what we're all called to do. Paul's giving us, giving us instruction on how to deal with unbelievers just in the regular course of daily life. And he gives us three little tips here for, uh, for being witnesses to the world around us. And frankly, I don't think this has ever been more important in our lifetime than it is right now. We need to hear this. Because you know how we can be. Our personal march towards sanctification can so easily become a justification for some sort of spiritual superiority over everybody around us. Why can't they be more like us? Or we get really, really caught up in the culture war idea and forget that what we're facing is really a spiritual battle. And culture is just a reflection of the soul. And where they are, we once were. We forget that our goal is not to win a war, but to play our small role in winning a soul. So Paul says when you're dealing with your unbelieving coworker or your unbelieving friend or neighbor or family member or whatever, don't think of them as enemy combatants. Rather, he says, let your speech be gracious. Full of grace. Dripping with grace. Oozing with grace. Let your speech be overflowing with grace. And he doesn't say it outright here, but we just talked about how God's grace is one of the key themes of of these letters. So kind of wrapped up in this thought is Paul saying, be gracious to the unbeliever. Show them grace just as God has been overflowing with grace towards you. And he still is. So I don't think we should reasonably expect unbelievers to live according to the, the same moral standard that we have because they've not agreed to that. They're not, they don't yet believe that. So we graciously, graciously show them the unmerited love of Christ and show them how that can make life better. That's the first tip Paul gives. Let your speech be gracious. It's grace. He also says, let our speech be seasoned with salt. And that's a, clearly an old, old expression. It has several kind of shades of meaning. One is to make something more attractive, uh, as pleasant as possible, enjoyable. Salt enhances flavor. It just makes it better. Always. Salt always makes everything better. Our speech, the words we use, the attitude with which we speak, our mannerisms, all of that should enhance the message of the gospel rather than detract from it. And here's the thing. I think, you know, we we talk to an awful lot of people over the course of a week. We talk to far too many people, is what I'm saying, over the course of the week. And as a rule, people know when we're being sincere. So as we're conversing with people about, you know, life or the weather or whatever, and we see an opportunity to share Jesus with them, does our speech, does our delivery, uh, does it seem personal and organic and heartfelt? Or does it seem forced, like we have a quota? We got a report back to Body Life Service that, you know, Thursday was my share Jesus with somebody day, and I checked that box. I'm good. Another meaning of seasoned with salt, and another shading of it, it means just to keep it interesting so it's not bland. So I would say, for me, that means we need to minimize our platitudes and our bumper sticker Christianity. I honestly cringe 
when I hear someone say, God will never give you more than you can handle. It's right on par with that other really popular verse, God helps those who help themselves. They're equally doctrinally rich. I mean, when you're having a deep discussion with an unbeliever and they're dealing with really, truly hard life stuff, what they do not want to hear is, God will never give you more than you can handle. Especially when the truth is, God will give you more than you can handle for the purpose of causing you to turn to him, causing you to rely on him, causing you to trust in him more because there is nobody better suited to handle it than God himself. So our speech needs to be seasoned with salt, which is greatly helped by Paul's third tip here. Uh, He says we should know how we ought to answer each person. Which means we need to walk in wisdom. That's how he starts it. Walk in wisdom. And we just, just saw this verse last week, Colossians 3.16, let the word of God dwell richly in you. We need to know the word of God. The absolute best way, the only way really, for us to deal wisely with unbelievers is to be firmly rooted in his word ourselves. I, you know me, I'm really, really smart, but I don't know everything. Al's much closer. But (laughs) I'm offended by that. This is the only way to deal with so many. I can't tell you how many times people have come to talk and need to counsel or whatever, and they start telling me whatever it is, and I think I have no idea what to say to this person. And then a verse. Uh, You know, I'm doing one of those quick bullet prayers. Oh, Lord, what, what I've... What do I need to say here? And a verse comes to mind. Or it's, it's from knowing as much as we can about this. That's what helps us walk in wisdom. So we're better prepared to have an answer for each person. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, be prepared and be gracious. And we all know this to be true, that that not everyone we share Jesus with is going to become a believer. It's sad, but it's true. But we don't want to be the reason that someone refuses to believe in the name of Jesus. We don't want to be the bad apple that causes him to swear off applesauce. So we are to be prepared with grace and salt and wisdom and, and walking out our faith in full view of all those watching us. And this is so important. This, this, this idea is so important. These are, this is part of the last words that Paul shared with this church. This is the last thing he wants them to remember. And then he gets into this kind of longer, you know, almost a PS kind of section. This is his final summation to the church, to every church. This has now been passed down for generations to every believer. This is important. And then Paul concludes the letter here by including some more, it seems like maybe business-like elements to the letter, but kind of with a personal garnish. Uh, And remember, Paul just asked for prayer for us, and now he provides a little more information as to who this us is. Starting verse 7, he said, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother 
and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Paul introduces here, kind of via letter, this ministry associate of his named Tychicus. He was probably the, the kind of the point man for this expedition, this, this small group of people who, who made this trip to pass out the letters along the way to the appropriate churches. And it, Tychicus maybe also planned to spend some time with the church in Colossae to, to update the church, certainly about Paul's circumstances and how he was doing and what his plans were, how he was faring under sequestration. But Tychicus was also going to try to help them understand, perhaps, what was contained in this letter addressed to the church to answer questions. He was going to help teach a little bit, to encourage their hearts. Paul must have had a fair amount of trust in Tychicus. He referred to him as a beloved brother and and faithful minister. Paul wants the church to get to know him personally. So perhaps Tychicus had longer-term plans to stay there and be part of the leadership. We don't know for sure. But Paul has mentioned him in other letters as being trustworthy. So he's got a lot of faith in Tychicus to be on this journey. Well, Paul also mentions Onesimus here, also a faithful and beloved brother and runaway slave. So it's interesting that Paul mentions him here in this letter, but we're going to talk about that more next week in the book of Philemon. Moving on to verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So Paul, here's the us I want you to pray for. Here's a few more of my associates. Here's this guy named Aristarchus. He's been a companion of Paul for some time now, um, and and apparently is also locked up with Paul uh, under Roman authority. You may remember the name. He was one of the guys with Paul when the riot broke out in Ephesus, uh, recorded in the book of Acts. And so we know that Aristarchus has been a companion to Paul for some time. He's been a faithful companion to Paul. We read here about Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And this is the same John Mark with whom Paul had a falling out with on a, on a previous missionary journey. John Mark had accompanied Paul on Paul's first missionary journey, but for reasons unknown, really, John Mark abruptly left Paul and went back to Jerusalem. It caused uh, some, some hard feelings. Um, and we don't know why. M- maybe the, the hardships, uh, all the things that Paul was having to face, just too much for Mark, and he, he left and went back. We don't really know, but we do know that all, although he left this mission trip with Paul, he did not leave the faith. Mark is mentioned in other places as a traveling companion to Peter. He accompanied Barnabas on a trip to Cyrus. But his departure from Paul caused Paul to question his commitment, at least for a while. It also caused a bit of a falling out between Paul and Barnabas, Mark's cousin. And it caused Paul and Barnabas to split and go their own ways for a little while. However, we see here, Paul sends greetings from Mark. So clearly they've, they've made up. They're, 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 they're on friendly terms again. They're on speaking terms. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he referred to Mark as one who is profitable to him for ministry. So Mark has worked his way back into Paul's good graces, anyway. And you notice that Paul says Barnabas may be coming to visit, so Barnabas and Paul have mended fences as well. And this doesn't seem like a whole lot other than to realize that what Paul is really saying here is that he's practicing 
the, the reconciliation and unity that he was preaching in his other books. Paul is living out what he's teaching other people to do. And finally in this section, Paul mentions Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, it seems to me, to be fair, if you were alive at that time and your name was Jesus, you'd go by your middle name too. You'd want to lower that bar as much as possible before going into any new place. Um, And apart from being mentioned here, we know nothing else about Jesus' justice. Except that, Paul does mention that these three men are men of the circumcision. They were all Jews. They were Jewish converts. And then you kind of pick up a note of sadness here as well from Paul, I think. He says, these are the only Jewish men who are members of the kingdom of God. These are the only converts that, that, that Paul has made to the faith. And remember, Paul was a Pharisee first. He's a Jewish teacher. His heart is still for the Jewish people. And so you get this hint of sadness that others have not been as willing to follow Christ. But these three, he says, they've been a comfort to him. He was on in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. And for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So Epaphras is first mentioned. He says he is one of you. Uh, And Epaphras is from the area. He's, He's a local boy. A lot of people might know him already. He's also a servant of Christ Jesus. And he says that Epaphras struggles on your behalf in his prayers. He has a real heart for you. He's concerned for you. He prays that you, his countrymen, his people, you'll stand mature. You'll stand fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras has just a real pastor's heart for these people. And I think the, the point of this is kind of twofold. Paul's presenting Epaphras as an example of what walking in a worthy manner looks like. You know this guy. You, you know his background. Maybe, maybe you knew him growing up. Here's what this looks like to be a mature, faithful follower of Christ. But he also is, is trying to remind the local church of the love that Epaphras has for them. He's a member of your community. He's, he's a member of the collective body of Christ. Look to him. Welcome him. And Paul testifies... Really, I witness, I bear witness that Epaphras has worked hard for you. And for the other churches nearby, uh, uh, in the general area, he has a heart for all the people in this area so that you will have a heart for Christ. Remember him in your prayers. And then there's a quick mention of Luke the physician. He greets you. And notice it's not just Dr. Luke says, hey, this is the beloved physician Luke. This is the same physician Luke who wrote the third gospel in the book of Acts. He was a companion to Paul on several of his journeys, as well as staying with Paul through his two-year imprisonment in Caesarea, through the two-year imprisonment under Roman authority, during which time this letter was written. So Luke was indeed beloved, certainly by Paul, for his loyalty and service. Luke sends his greetings, and Demas. Now it's interesting that Demas is not listed as beloved, Or as a fellow prisoner, or as an associate, or as a faithful brother, as a minister, just plain old Demas. And we don't really know why, but what we do know is more than likely this is the same Demas that is mentioned in 2 Timothy 
It says, do your best to come see me soon for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So it seems that Demas at some point, at some time, came to love this present world more than the Christ who died for him. And he left the mission. He left the church. He left the faith. And who knows, maybe even as Paul was writing this, he kind of had his suspicions about Demas. You know, maybe, oh yeah, and Demas. Don't forget him. But another interesting thing, this, another interesting thing about these three names is that they're all Gentile names. So Paul first mentions three Jews, men of the circumcision, who have been serving with them, and here he mentions three Gentiles, which puts another exclamation point on Paul's entire teaching about the mystery of the gospel. It's available to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, male and female, slave or free, because Onesimus is mentioned here also. Grace is available to everybody. Paul is walking out his faith and theirs for the church to see. And then finally, the closing, closing thoughts are, give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So Paul sends his greetings to the brothers at nearby Laodicea and specifically to Nympha and the church in her house. It's the only mention of Nympha in the Bible. But just based on this, there's a couple things we can surmise. We can assume um, that Nympha was probably a person of some wealth, some standing. Uh, She had a house big enough to host a church gathering. So she had to have some some substance, probably. Um, We can assume that she, and it's probably a she, there's some discussion about that, but probably a she, she was devout, she was a follower, she willingly hosted meetings in her house, um, which meant she was generous with her wealth also. She allowed her home to be used for the kingdom. So Paul makes a, a, a special example of her here. Again, this was unusual in the day for Paul to mention this woman by name and, and record her good behavior, her, her righteous behavior for other people. Um, it was unusual for the time for him to point her out. We also learned from this section that these letters to these specific churches were really intended to be cyclicals. They were received by the church they were written to, but then they were passed on and continued to cycle through other churches. Uh, This had the effect of edifying all the churches. It had the effect of making sure that they're all being built up in the faith, that they're all sharing an orthodoxy. They all have uh, unified beliefs. They all understood the grace of, the mercy, and the sovereignty of our Lord. And then Paul mentions Archippus here, about whom we know very little. Um, we'll actually discuss him a little bit more next week because he shows up in the book of Philemon as well. But Paul says to the church in Colossae, you need to encourage Archippus. Tell, tell him to see to it that he fulfills the ministry that he's received from the Lord. It's a bit cryptic. We don't know what that means. We don't really learn any more next week either. 
Um, but maybe Archippus had some kind of a, you know, a, a, a leadership role, maybe some kind of a ministry responsibility, and Paul heard that he's slacking a little bit. I don't know. We're not quite sure what this means. But then there's this final, final, final concluding thought. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Clearly indicates that he's probably been dictating the contents of this letter up until now. Probably dictating to Timothy. And even though Timothy might have written the words down, these were Paul's teachings under the supervision and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So here at the end, Paul gives it just one more little personal touch by signing it himself, and he asks the church again to pray for him, to remember that he is confined for doing the work of an evangelist. Remember my chains. But again, he does not ask for freedom. Just remember why he is there. And to pray that he gets an opportunity to continue to share the gospel with other people. Even if that means his stay is extended. And then he bids them, grace be with you. Now, if you flash all the way back to the beginning of this letter after the obligatory self-introductions, the first thing Paul says to this church, the very first thing he says to this church is, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul's teachings to all of these churches, Colossians is, is a great example, it starts with grace and it ends with grace. It's almost as though Paul knows that believers in every age and in every time will need to rely heavily on the abundant grace of God our Father. It's almost though he knows that we are going to walk in a manner worthy of our faith and we're going to do it imperfectly. It's like he knows that we're going to share the good news of the gospel imperfectly. That we're going to order our lives to live rightly based on the right beliefs of the word of God and we're going to do it imperfectly. So we thank God for his unending, overflowing supply of grace from beginning to end. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, again, it's just such a a treat. It is an honor to be able to work through uh, your word, um, to learn more about your character, your nature, and how that um, is so willingly available to us through our faith in Jesus Christ, through the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that these, uh, these letters, these teachings would, would um, spark within us, kindle a, a renewed fire to really know your word, to let it dwell richly in us so that we are prepared to give an answer, prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. Lord, not that faith is just a, a, a feeling, but it is a feeling that is accompanied by by knowledge, by wisdom, by facts, by history. There's so much more that's wrapped up in faith than just how we feel about something. So Lord, I pray that our our faith is renewed, that our desire to to learn more about you and to learn more about your word is renewed, Um, especially as we're going through these these challenging for some holidays ahead um, where we are going to be spending time with unsaved family and friends Uh, Lord, I pray that um, our our speech would be gracious. It would be seasoned with salt. And we would rely on wisdom that comes from above. We thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.